This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Natasha Feroz and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and Fraser Nelson, our two specialists on the net migration statistics that came in on Thursday. We did talk about it on Thursday, but we thought you'd bring you two together who have usually conflicting opinions on it. Fraser, you wrote your Telegraph column on the net migration figures. What's your view? My argument in summary is that net migration has been, is first of all running at about six times David Cameron's level. He spoke about getting it down to the tens of thousands. Now, we found out yesterday it's running broadly at 650,000, which is a fair old rate, quite unprecedented in British history. We had more net immigration in January of this year, for example, than in the whole Windrush period or within the whole, for that matter, for the last century. So we are not used to discussing the consequences of migration. Now, I am a fan of migration. I'm the the, the husband of an immigrant. Uh, One of the reasons I love being British is I think that we successfully absorb people from from around the world. I reckon we can claim to be one of the greatest melting pots in the developed world, certainly in Europe. But my concern isn't about what immigration is doing to our society or anything like that, I think is making Britain a more interesting and vibrant place to live. My concern is that it's too much of a good thing because it lets politicians not reform welfare in the way that they should. So to me, there there are two things. I draw a connection between this um, doubling, perhaps trebling of net migration figures and the huge increase in welfare numbers. Now, in this country, we've got um, something like 5.5 million people on an out-of-work benefits. In Manchester, 18% of that city are on out-of-work benefits. In Liverpool, uh, it's 20%. In Glasgow, it's 20%. In Blackpool, it's 25%. Now, I am old enough to remember when worklessness at this level was a national scandal. When it hit over 3 million under Margaret Thatcher, people were absolutely shocked, as well they should have been, because this is about an economic model. How can we all get together in society? It's not simply about a GDP high score. We have got a bad economic model if we are failing to use the talents of such a big chunk of these cities, and I think it's 13 to 14% nationally. If we can't get them to work, and yet we are sucking in workers from overseas at this level, we are doing something wrong. And of course, I, in my opinion, if we didn't, well, if we weren't able to call on the services and the talents of all these immigrants, then we would have no choice but to grow the economy by um, confronting the very difficult problems of uh, welfare. I also, by the way, don't see anybody. I saw a good minister the other day who was saying, you know, Fraser, there are only three people in Britain who care about this. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, Mel Stride, the, the, the DWP Secretary, and you. In other words, you don't really get anybody really calling for the government to reform welfare. And you can see why with migration running as high as it is. Kate, do you draw that same connection between the net migration figures and the welfare problems we're having at the moment? I don't don't draw the same connection. I think Fraser is completely right to continue to talk about this atrocity taking place within the welfare system in which now millions of people have been put on out-of-work benefits and essentially been left there. It is bad for their dignity, it is bad for their lives that they are not being given the same opportunities to be pushed back into work. 
The reason I don't draw the same connection is simply because even with these record high levels of net migration, the data heavily suggests that migrants are not taking their jobs. And, you know, I'm putting it that bluntly because when you talk about the native worker versus the migrant worker, what you are saying in in quite a flowery way, Fraser, is that it's one or the other. And our great worker shortage continues to suggest that it is most certainly not one or the other. Uh, I'm not saying that at all. You're doing a Kathy Newman. So to clarify then, you think it's possible to have high migration like we have now and to get people back into work because I was listening to your first answer and it sounded like you were suggesting that was not compatible. You were suggesting an opinion I do not believe. I mean, I think it's a, it's a bit depressing when the, argument, the, the migration arguments get shunted into these two extremes. So what you're saying is X. No, that's not what I'm saying. What are you saying? What I'm saying is that, of course, it is possible to have um, mass migration and it's possible to reduce welfare. We did this from, broadly speaking, 2010 up until 2020. It was, we had levels of, what, 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 broadly speaking, quarter of a million a year under David Cameron and we managed to come up with fantastic welfare reform. Wait Uh, a second, you just mentioned a number from quite some time ago. I'm talking about the 675,000 that was reported this week. Yes, exactly. So do you think we can have very high migration and get people back into work based on the numbers we're talking about this week, not from David Cameron's era? To be honest, I think that when we're looking at six, seven hundred thousand a year, I think that's pushing it a wee so bit. The answer, so your answer is, is no? No, no, no. Again, you're doing that wee trick. But pushing it a wee bit, I, I would love just some clarity on this so I look, can then address broadly it. Broadly speaking, I th- look, it, it, it seems a bit daft to put precise figures on it, but I think that history has shown us that net migration of about 200, 250,000 a year is compatible with cutting people from welfare. Our recent history, we're talking about the last three or four years, suggests that if you are to... We're talking about 4,000 people a day, a day in Britain, who are claiming um, sickness benefit. If you if you look at the OBR, you get some terrifying figures for how many people they expect to leave the labour market and join welfare. 600,000 people, more than the population of Bristol, are expected to join the welfare system. Mm-hmm. I'm saying 250, yeah, we can probably do it. 600, no. That suggests that those 600 people are filling a hole created by welfare dysfunction and we're not solving the welfare dysfunction because we don't have to because the, the, the immigration card is the easiest one for politicians to play what I hear is he thinks that the current figures out this Thursday roughly 675,000 are not compatible with getting native Brits back into work and listeners can decide if I have somehow misinterpreted this or forced his answer that he is saying that the migrant worker and the native worker with levels at 675,000 are pit against each other, that it's one or the other. And I will say again that the data does not bear that. If we look at what's happening in the labor market in the UK right now, we have over 950,000 job vacancies. We're down from the 1.2 million peak that we hit, but we are so well above our pre-pandemic levels. We are desperate for workers. Businesses are desperate. We saw post-pandemic that there was a huge push on the part of employers to get people back into work. Jobs that were usually minimum wage were being offered salaries double, triple what you'd usually get. Fraser commissioned me to write an article for this magazine back in July 2021 about how workers were now the boss because there were just these incredible opportunities to go into what were usually lower paid jobs on offer for Brits. And the harsh, horrible reality is that it didn't move the dial very much. 
we will agree that government policy on welfare needs to be significantly improved. But this idea that you're, that, that is all you, that you tie this to net migration figures, because we can have a conversation about welfare on its own, what ministers need to do. But the fact that you tie it to net migration figures means that I need to point out that it is not the employers or the migrants who are stopping people on out-of-work benefits from getting back into work. These subsidies the incentives to stay out of work, the way in which we've written people off is a huge problem, but none of that falls on the migrant. And one of the reasons that... I'm not that, saying what it does. Well, and listeners can decide whether or not tying it to the net migration figures is, is, is placing some of the blame there. The reason I think we decided to have this podcast again, because we do this every few months, isn't just because we think people like to listen to us fight. It's because... I have noticed recently the extent to which I think you have moved the dial in your argument. Um, your telegraph column, as always, is so eloquent and beautifully written, but I was really surprised to see you leaning in to the tens of thousands narrative that was such a pernicious, detrimental policy, and it hurt countless lives. And I am really surprised, because when we met, you know, four or five years ago, Fraser, you would have thought that policy was just as atrocious as I do. I don't think I ever did this. No, I don't think I've changed my position at all in all of the 15, 20 years that I have been writing about this. Now, right now, you see this as me thinking, basic blaming, one of the words you use, that I'm blaming the um, the immigrants for the Brits not taking jobs. I am, to be very clear, I am blaming the system. I think that I don't think this is a, a country of lazy people. I don't think Brits are indolent. I don't think they're skivers or shirkers. I, I, I deplore all of that language. I'm thinking the system, the incentives we've got right now don't work. Now, the fact that we've got so many very good, high-skilled, very employable migrants coming here allows government not to reform the system. That's where I place the blame. We have a system that right now, the problem is that it can't handle mental health complaints. It doesn't know how um, how to respond when somebody says that they're they're feeling too anxious to work. It used to be the case that welfare would take people from unemployment into work. Now now the problem is, like, basically mental health. There are inflows there that Mel Stride this week says it's not, not until April 2025 are the proposals he mentioned going to come in because he finds it so difficult to change the instructions in the welfare state. Now, that is a fairly leisurely timetable for me. Let's imagine a scenario, Kate, where... For some reason, nobody wants to come to Britain. Right? So let's say we're one of these countries which is so unattractive that we don't attract any migrants. We would be having a national emergency right now because there wouldn't be enough workers. And for that, the government, I think, will be acting with a lot more urgency than it is about fixing the welfare system. It's a very difficult thing to do because nobody thanks you for fixing welfare. If you're a welfare reformer, then you'll be accused of being cruel and heartless and administering tough love. If and that's if it goes right. If it goes wrong, then can Lutch will make a film about you and same saying this is just you're you know you're dealing you're messing about with the lives of some of the most vulnerable people you absolutely are. Welfare reform is the most difficult thing to do in any democracy. The easiest thing in any democracy to do is to basically forget about these people to consign them if that's an option. It only is an option if you can get your workers from elsewhere. So that's why I think there's a tension, not between migrant workers and domestic workers. There's a tension between the government's desire or the the way the government 
feels the need, the urgency to reform welfare and the alternative to welfare reform. For as long as there is a fantastic alternative to welfare reform, and there is, it, then I think the law of political battles, simply the realpolitik, will mean that politicians will choose to avoid this fight if they possibly can. Now, this is the conflict that I am laying out here. And my other point is that if Jeremy Hunt and Mel Stride are taking such a long, long time to sort this out, I'm not sure if a Labour government is going to look at it at all. So what I worry about is a society where we permanently just forget about these people that we're consigning off to welfare. And it seemed to be a 20-year project to ever fix it. And I think that... the So we need to have a discussion right now. Is this really the trade-off we want to make as a society? Because this is not sure. If you want to maximise GDP, then I get it. You can look on immigration to do that. If you want to maximise GDP per capita, then you probably take in these high-skilled immigrants. I don't doubt that. But I think there is something which is more important than GDP, even more important than prosperity. And that's our cohesion as a society. Our ability to link economic growth in this country to the poor, the unemployed, those who leave school with no qualifications, those who struggle to find their place in the workforce. And yes, we might be able to afford to say to those people, look, here's a welfare check, kindly go and live in an edge of town estate and don't come bother us again. Or we can say, you know, we do not have the option to do this morally, we need to help these people. But I would like a situation, and we're going, let's go back to the post-Brexit days when I commissioned you to write that cover. I thought there could be a situation where the government asked employers to go cold turkey, saying, um, look, could you? we're not going to um, give you guys any more. The Im- immigration tab is being turned off, so now you're going to have to train people up. If you don't have the right skills, you're going to have to train people more. If you're in a care home, maybe you're going to have to pay people a proper salary. We're not going to get away. We're not going to tolerate a system where care home workers are paid less than shelf stackers. And the you say, Kate, but that was tried and it failed. I say it wasn't tried long enough because there was a tug of war, really, a battle of nerves, and the employers collectively won. The Conservatives um, ended up issuing shed loads more visas and ended up again covering up the problem rather than dealing with it. And that, I think, is a, a really serious issue which we need to talk about if we genuinely are going to build an economic model based on the bifurcation of society between those who are basically in the economy and those who are being paid to sit out. Fraser, I agree with so much of what you just said around welfare. And if every, if for every job we had 200 people applying and the migrant were getting it every time, I think you might have a point. But I would reiterate that nothing is being covered up, in my opinion. You think there is this, this huge cover-up. I, I think the truth is, Fraser, people simply are aware of the data. They're aware that 5.3 million people. I think a lot of people, especially in government, are aware and it isn't their top priority and that's a tragedy. But I don't think anything's being covered up. We are all feeling the impact of domestic inflation in large part because of this labor market crunch. Immigrants are not solving it. Immigrants have not fixed the problem. There are still a myriad of economic problems because we don't have these people in work. And yet, what immigrants are essentially doing is like filling the plugging the holes so we can just about just about get by they are not they are not giving us four percent growth they're giving us a tiny fraction of growth that's just about keeping us out of recession nothing's being covered up all the data is there to see your issue is that people don't care about what's happening to the workless enough and i i completely agree with you but you use some really interesting language there and this is what we have to get into you essentially said take away the migrants and you'll have a national emergency i agree with economic that economic emergency yeah so let's acknowledge 
acknowledge that. Let's talk about, if we look at these net migration figures, breaking them down by who's actually here, let's talk about who you wouldn't have here. Let's talk about what happens when domestic workers, as they did in 2021, don't take up those care home jobs. Well, let's talk about what happens to the people in those care homes. Let's talk about what happens to the people in those hospitals if we remove the gap fillers, as you say. I'd pretty happily talk about that. Well, Fraser, I mean, people... People, I, I don't even want to get into the incredible ramifications of, of what would happen in the short term and how They'd many lives would be lost. Properly. No, how many lives would be lost if you just didn't hire that care home worker, if you just didn't have well, you'd hire that them. hospital worker. You'd have worker. to pay them enough so they take the job. Fraser, I think the absolute tragedy of what's going on right now is that the entire incentive structure, not just money, is so far off when it comes to the conditions of the NHS, when it comes to conditions of care homes. I don't blame a lot of people for not wanting to go work there. But the tragedy is that if you were to create, and I'm pleased we're being honest about this because a lot of people aren't, a lot of people are just like, reduce the headline figure. And it's like, well, okay, so you want to send the care home workers home. You want to send the social workers home. You want to send the doctors and nurses I home. I want them paid more. What I'm hearing from you, with all due respect, is this fantasy world in which you think ministers are going to step up to the plate, implement whatever kinds of public policy in which all of a sudden those 5.3 million are going to be gunning for work. I agree with you, Fraser. It's not alternative, and they do right now. It's not because it's not because people are lazy or they don't want that dignity. But so many things are working against them here. Um, But the fantasy world you talk about has real implications for people that aren't you and me. I mean, in your Telegraph column, you say you can see the effect in our economic figures. I'm quoting, this year's economic growth is 0.6%. It would be a 0.3% decline on a per per capita basis without the migrants. It's easy for us to talk that way. What about people who really can't pay their bills right now? When you talk about taking the economic hit, creating the national emergency, get rid of the care home workers, get rid of the doctors and nurses that are foreign born, like, come on, think about the actual world that you'd be creating. Nobody's and this talking is about what... getting rid of anybody. Okay, so, you, so, you're hap- so you're happy with the headline figure then? I'm not talking about deportation, if that's what you're suggesting. You want fewer doctors and nurses to come here next year? I would like net migration to be a lot lower than it so, is. So and who's I would like not the incentive coming? structures to get put in place. Who's not coming? Whereby, what do you mean who's not coming? Who's not coming? When you reduce it from 675,000, let's not go down to the tens of thousands quite Maybe just yet. Let's go to so 300,000. Work visas. So who's not coming? Whoever's taking the work visas right now, there's simply be fewer. Can you, can you answer who's not coming? It is one of those difficult. Please don't let them off the hook. Who's no, not coming? No, it's, it's a ridiculous question. You can't say who's not coming. Of course, that's what you have to do if you take issue with the headline figure because I have the breakdown here of the students, of the humanitarian routes, of the asylum seekers, of the work visas. Who's they, not they're, coming? They're rather ropey figures, I don't The ONS has had some serious issues with reporting. They're the best we have. And they're still pretty ropey. Please answer the question. Who's not coming? If you can't answer I, that question, no, you I can't, can't answer that. Well, it's, you can't, it's an unanswerable question. Of course, it's not unanswerable. There, the, it, it is the this tough is question like that people to like you have to answer. It is the tough question when you take issue with the headline rate that you have to have an answer to. Okay, you don't want six hundred seventy-five thousand people coming here net coming here a year. You want it to be closer to three hundred thousand or two hundred thousand. Tell me who those three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand people are that aren't coming here. 
I find this rather a reductive question, but if you want a direct answer to it, yes, I do. I'd like to stick with the care home workers. I would far rather the care homes had to pay a decent wage, enough to get to, it's a skilled job for which they're paid unskilled wages. The whole care home industry, which is by the way quite profitable, is built on a an absolutely appalling low wage model. I would like not just the care home industry, but other industries to be built on a higher wage model. I would like to see more automation in Britain. Right now, we, we've got too many people doing jobs that machines should be doing, or one of the least automated countries in the OECD, because employers have always been able to get hold of a low-cost migration um, and low-cost labour when it suited them. It's if an they- interesting one you picked, because the ONS says that actually the big increase in work visas for non-EU migrants, up to 33% this year from 22% last year, is largely attributed to those coming on health and care visas. So these are the jobs that we fundamentally need the most that we are not filling to the detriment of people in those care homes every day, and these are the people you'd have fewer of next year. Full disclosure right now, we have sitting by this fantastic young um, sixth former, Pooja, who wrote one of the articles this week. She's sitting in. Now, when I've got no idea what Pooja wants to do with her career, but say she wanted to be a medic. Quite a lot of people in her do. Now, she wants to um, apply to do university to do medicine, but you, you can have like A stars up the yin yang and still be turned down for a medical place in Britain because we ration the number of people that the government will allow to study medicine. I think that's an absolute tragedy. I think lots of bright people in this country would love a career in medicine, but we're, what, instead, we've got this really bad model where what we do is we, we um, radically cut down the people who could be medics who actually are allowed to train. And then when the NHS a few years down the line all of a sudden doesn't have enough people, so it just hires them in a panic from the Philippines yes, or whatever. Yes, I agree. We need to now reform this, the NHS. So this is a... Sorry, you asked me to do the trade-off. I would like a system where anybody with a grades to become a medic can train as one, and the government stops filling in the panic gaps by importing people from countries that, to be frank, it should not be stealing health workers from. So there's a hard example for you, as well as the care workers. I could add this to the, the other factory workers, to... There's a long list of examples. Uh, You'll have to forgive me if I'm not so convinced that your long-term plan for the workforce of the NHS, which would require someone like Pooja, hello, to uh, train for the next 15 to 20 years, is going to fill our care home problem in 2024, which is why I bring this background to the fact that you can complain about that headline figure all you want, and we can certainly talk about changes we make for the next 20 years, but if you want those care home jobs filled and those medic jobs filled next year, you're going to have to rely on migrants or you're going to have some pretty horrible gaps. What we could have had post-Brexit and what we have lost and what we're never going to get and what I was perhaps foolish to believe we ever would get was a system where the Brexit vote would be taken as an instruction to improve the social model so that the NHS planners, the governments of the future, would think to themselves, no, the people of this country have voted for a more cohesive social model where we are going to train more people in this country to be medics and we're going to say in future we're not going to take the easy option of hoovering up nurses and doctors from countries who frankly need them more than we do. I will accept that that the government's strength of purpose here basically didn't even last a year or two. The government buckled and for as long as people wanted to come here, then this short-term world where we do underinvest, we do undertrain and we do panic import from abroad is going to stay for some time. I suspect nothing is going to change that. So I would simply like to have a proper conversation about what really we're going to do to those that we are consigning to benefits without any real plan of helping. And I might be the only person really wanting to raise this conversation, but I think if the Labour government are not going to make any changes, I'm not quite sure who is. 
last time we had one of these conversations in the summer, lots of our listeners wrote in to tell us their thoughts, whether they were Team Fraser or Team Kate. So please do do that again. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, Pooja, for joining us. And thanks for listening.